Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron of Barron Public Affairs, and thank you for joining us at the intersection of policy, politics, and demographics. Today's episode, The Invisible Hand of American Politics. The typical story of the involvement of special interests in American politics usually falls along the following lines. A well-meaning, well-intentioned group of public servants operating in Washington is descended upon by rapacious corporate interests who flood the system like Vikings overrunning an English village and ruin what otherwise would be the pristine discovery of policy. And those special interests, almost exclusively funded by corporations, are a distorting element of the American political system. And although there are elements of that story that have a kernel of truth, the reality is much, much more complex. And as we explore in our most recent political risk brief, which we call the foundation factor, the truth is that not-for-profits increasingly operate as near-peer competitors in the political system to even the largest publicly traded corporations. Joining me today, as always, Johnny Fluger. Great to be here. Our chief strategist. And Jeremy Fershcott, director. Thank you very much. So in our most recent brief, we look at this question about the different factors that contribute to policy outcomes and what is actually the role of not-for-profits, and in particular, some of the nation's largest foundations. And I think commonly it's understood that foundations operate along the lines they did perhaps 100 or so years ago. They're sort of the cuddly house cats of the American not-for-profit sector, and they buy things like mosquito nets, and they engage in all kinds of wonderful good works at the local level. They do international aid and development, and again, very much conform to the model that was set about a century or so ago, about 120 years ago, in the age of the robber barons and the Gilded Age. But as we operate in Washington and what we see emerging is actually quite different. And not-for-profit foundations have emerged as real enormous influences on the political system. And one interesting statistic that will begin our conversation, I think, is if you think about the healthcare sector. And in the healthcare sector, you have the largest health insurance industry trade association that according to their 990, which is the form they file with the IRS, they spend something on the order of 85 plus million dollars per year. If you look at the four major foundations who spend the most influencing policy in the healthcare sector, they spend a combined $400 million annually. So that gives you a sense of the magnitude of the not-for-profit sector and its importance in the political system. I want to turn to you, Johnny, first sort of walk us through a little bit of the history. There's a very interesting background to when philanthropy institutionalized, emerged in the United States, its original intentions, and how it changed in the decades following its founding and emerged to what we see today. As you alluded to, Jonathan, the foundations that we have today really originated during the Gilded Age, and in particular in the early 20th century, after many of the fortunes were created, and many of those fortunes, many of those tycoons were criticized for their business conduct. And they created, such as Andrew Carnegie, entities that promoted, as we describe in our brief, social welfare, education, arts, and culture. You can see that in the streetscape of Washington, D.C., with the Carnegie Library that has become an Apple store which is a metaphor, I guess, for associational life in the United States. But that was the modus operandi of foundations. And over the course of the 20th century, 
and in particular in response to policy changes such as tax reform legislation, these foundations began to widen in terms of their ambitions toward what I would call issue advocacy. And in part, I think that's a response to the advantageous tax treatment. There was some controversy 15 years ago about university endowments as a subset of foundations and whether they are forced to spend too little of their endowment annually. And without wading into that normative policy discussion, one thing that occurred over the course of the 20th century is that if you owned equities through the Great Depression and World War II and the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you have made a lot of money over time. Your asset base has grown a lot larger. So many of these foundations, which were funded in part with Gilded Age fortunes, have grown and grown and grown. And thus their resources, their capacity to act on policy issues is greater than it was arguably. So that's one factor. And I think another factor is there has been this scientism that has emerged within philanthropy. In the brief, we describe the famous Harvard Business School professor Michael Porter's co-authored article from 1999, Philanthropy's New Agenda, Creating Value. And we've seen over and over again that many of these large foundations and philanthropies approach political giving from a portfolio management perspective, where they think of themselves like a hedge fund as placing a lot of small bets in different areas, or you could say venture capitalists, and waiting for the power law to apply and having one issue advocacy bet produce a 10x return or 100x return while the others kind of meander along. So I think there have been cultural developments, legal developments, as well as doctrinal developments that have taken us from 100 years ago to today. Johnny, I would add to that that there have also been changes in the structure of the private sector and the role of government. Relative to 100, 120 years ago, there are a lot more government dollars available to fund various initiatives that can help people, whether it has to do with hospitals or housing or any other types of initiatives that foundations might have been focused on over 100 years ago. So there's a lot of government money available. At the same time, the growth in private sector regulation has meant that foundations are now able to shape society by shaping regulation. So they have an opportunity to transform society through their efforts in a way that just didn't really make sense 100 years ago because the regulatory state was so much smaller back then. And I think it's important to give the listener a sense of scale. Often, I think the Rockefeller Foundation, which was one of the earliest, if not the earliest foundation created, is thought of as the sweeping, classic, not-for-profit philanthropy. And if you look in 2022 dollars, the endowment of the Rockefeller Foundation at the time, meaning in 1920, was $5.6 billion. And compare that to the 2022 number for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which reported a total endowment of more than $67 billion. So as big as the Rockefeller Foundation was in its time, it's essentially change that you find in the couch cushions in the modern era. So just one foundation, it's a big one to be sure, but the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is something like 12x 
the size of the Rockefeller Foundation back in 1920 in 2022 dollars. The asset base of the Gates Foundation also reflects the increase of value of Berkshire Hathaway A shares over the course of the second half of the 20th century, because a lot of the asset base of the Gates Foundation represents a gift or series of gifts from Warren Buffett. And I think that's significant as well, which is to say that these foundations reflect the best practices in financial management. A lot of other entities that have been active in political debate, you could say, have squandered their resources. I think one of the things we've seen over time is that foundations are disproportionately committed to developing what we call somewhat opaquely thought leadership. If you look at, for example, so much of the money that has gone into right-of-center political advocacy, it's been spent on advertising, TV ads. You can trace the money flow using the quarterly earnings reports of the small number of companies that own broadcast television channels in this country. If you look at the largest foundations, such as the four healthcare foundations you mentioned, there's some advertising represented by those dollars, but there are a lot more white papers, slide decks, research studies, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a significant development over time, the investment in intellectual products, not just funding a library in a city. Jeremy, I'd like you to explore and amplify some of the material in the brief, why American philanthropy has converged ideologically into a very sort of homogeneous, narrow set of positions on issues. Well, I think the paradox is that if you look at the largest foundations and if you look at their policy work, it tilts in one direction, tends to be left of center. Yet there are many very wealthy conservatives in the United States. So one might expect to see that the list of largest foundations might include a mix of right and left-leaning foundations. That is not really the case. Moreover, as Johnny's pointed out, right-of-center philanthropy tends to underinvest in policy development relative to left-of-center philanthropy. And you see this in the think tank worlds in D.C. While there are some very impressive right-of-center think tanks, if you look at the right-of-center policy world in the aggregate and compare it to the center-left policy world in its aggregate, there's a really significant imbalance. There's just a lot less right-of-center policy work that's being funded. That has all kinds of consequences for the conservative movement, There's a lot to say about that, but going back to your question, I think that there is some kind of fundamentally different theory of change that right-of-center and left-of-center philanthropists have when they think about how to shape society. And there are ideas. Ideas don't emerge out of nowhere. There are a small number of influencers, if I can use that term, who disproportionately have shaped the very conception of a theory of change among large philanthropies. There are certain academics. There are entities like the Bridgespan Group, the consulting arm or consulting spinoff of Bain, if I have that correctly. And this constellation of voices has developed best practices. And as a result of sharing those best practices and lessons learned historically with 
the philanthropic community, that community has coalesced around the theory of change that you described, Jeremy. And Johnny, how does Michael Porter and his strategic philanthropy, along with the work of Mark Kramer, factor into that dynamic? I think a lot of that is raking grantees over the coals, if I can be a little uncouth, which is to say really demanding that grantees fulfill whatever they have put in their applications for funding. I'm not sure that 75 years ago, executives at foundations really closely scrutinized every quarter, every half year, every year, the quote-unquote impact from the funds they were dispersing. But I think nowadays, from what we've seen, and in addition to what we read as historians of these developments, there is a major focus on alignment and accountability and demanding metrics for showing success. I think that is the most important thing. It's sort of the nonprofit analog to quarterly earnings. There are a lot of critics of quarterly earnings People who say, you know, publicly traded corporations would take a longer-term perspective if they only had to report every six months or every year. But at the end of the day, the system has coalesced around this view that you need to show improvement, not day in, day out, but almost day in, day out. I think that's been the big development. And to your point earlier, Johnny, I do think there are very important cultural and generational aspects of not-for-profit giving on the right and the left. I think that for the right, politics is a hobby, and for the left, it's a profession, it's a science, it's a technical vocation. Moreover, I think a lot of -of right-of-center donors, their formative years were really around television as the centerpiece of American life. And you made this point about advertising. I think to many, many right-of-center donors, if it's not on television, it's not real. They're from the era of when 60 Minutes and the Johnny Carson show loom large over the American landscape. So I think that my time in politics and doing work for -for not-for-profits, that has loomed large, and I haven't really seen anything like that so much on the left. So as I mentioned earlier, the common conception of corporations as dominating influence and foundations playing a much more minor, modest role, that is belied by the facts on spending in American politics. And I think it's worth taking a moment and walking through some of those facts. And I'd like to also dive in particular into the energy sector, where I think we see some pretty pronounced versions of this. The energy sector is a great case study. According to public filings, oil and gas companies spent just over $120 million in 2021 on direct lobbying, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. But what's interesting is if you compare that to what Bloomberg Philanthropies alone spent on its effort to, I quote, accelerate the transition to clean energy, Bloomberg Philanthropies alone spent more than $190 million on that initiative in 2021. Now, lobbying is not the same as funding not-for-profits and think tanks and policy work. So we're necessarily comparing apples to oranges in a certain sense, because most foundations don't engage in direct lobbying in the same way. But still, 
I think the quantitative difference is interesting. $120 million in lobbying by oil and gas companies and $197 million by Bloomberg Philanthropies on clean energy. And my recollection is that Bloomberg Philanthropies played a major role beside price factors in driving coal out of electricity generation in the United States and the, the campaign efforts of organizations like the Sierra Club. So it's an apt juxtaposition. I think if we were actually to have taken a different comparison point, if we were to have compared philanthropy funding on electric vehicles and other technologies involving the automotive sector, if we were to compare that to direct lobbying by automakers, I think we'd probably find an even starker disparity. Yeah, and I think the publicly available information indicates that it's entirely possible that the environmentalist community is outspending the non-environmentalist community in the sector of energy by five or 10 to one. I think that's entirely possible, which again is not, I think, what people generally understand. And what's fascinating about this phenomenon is that in terms of the norms of DC politics, both on the right and on the left, corporate funding is seen as carrying a bias at the very least, uh, or in certain cases, it's really seen as tainting or disqualifying what an organization does. Whereas foundation funding does not carry that same baggage. So there's a really important asymmetry here. An organization could receive $10 million in philanthropy funding, and that could be viewed as neutral. The same organization receives $200,000 from a corporate entity, and all of a sudden, that is seen as highly problematic. So there's a really important imbalance in not just how much funding is actually flowing into the policy world, but how that funding is perceived and therefore what is possible for other actors in the system. And that's even without examining the history of some of these foundations and their funding of what I would call very radical causes, maybe not always radical during the time in which the cause was funded, but if we look at some of the Gilded Age foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation, they were avid funders of eugenics research. And if we look at some of the prominent environmental philanthropists today, they have funded and support some pretty radical, I would say, anti-human perspectives. But your average donation from a Fortune 500 company (laughs) is grubby, but the donation from the arguably intellectual radical is somehow pure as the driven snow. It's an interesting issue in our political life. And it's also important to note, Johnny, that there have been several instances of environmental philanthropists, other types of philanthropists, actually paying for staff in government offices. And that's a fascinating application of philanthropy. For example, though, if a private company were to pay for 10 or 20 Senate staffers to work on a particular issue, to the point you made a moment ago, that would be seen as extremely untoward. We should probably just explore the public's understanding of the objectives of these foundations. Because in the public view, these are charitable foundations, and people think of foundations as doing things like sponsoring hospitals. But as we've seen in some of our work, sometimes foundations are actually closely aligned with commercial interests that they don't highlight. And so I think it may be worth helping our listeners understand the lines between charitable and commercial objectives and how those can get blurred. But let's go even a step farther, which is that 
there's no reason why ideological bias is less noxious than commercial bias. It's not obvious, meaning those two things could be equally problematic if they're distortions of policy. So if you're getting the same increment of distortion from ideological bias as commercial bias, I'm not sure the former is better than the latter. But often, I think, to your point earlier, Jeremy, the public or observers sort of make that illogical leap without much thought. A practical example of this phenomenon is when experts testify in Congress. There's a lot of sensitivity around any commercial funding that they may have had. So an expert might be asked by a member of Congress whether they have received funding from companies in general or a particular company, and sometimes sometimes this makes the news. It's very rare. I think it's almost unheard of for members of Congress to ask witnesses about their foundation affiliations and funding. I think one reason why John Q. Public might be confused is there are artifacts in our society of the older output of foundations. If you tune into PBS, for example, and you see the sponsorship titles at the end of a show, you see donations from foundations akin to what perhaps was more prevalent as a use of those foundation dollars 50 and 60 years ago. And if you go to a museum or a monument in Washington, D.C., and there's a plaque honoring the people who, and the entities that helped refurbish that monument, you're going to see foundations. And so it's very easy and convenient to draw back to that view of foundations, while the more aggressive stuff is occurring elsewhere. There's something else that we should point out, which is that there are two sectors of the economy which have been strongly shaped by foundations, not only in their origins, but also in their current tax-exempt structure and the high costs associated with them. Those two sectors are the hospital industry and the higher education industry. Both historically have been the recipients of a lot of foundation dollars. Both enjoy often tax-exempt statuses, and both have been criticized for having their costs skyrocket for reasons that many people believe is associated with their tax-exempt status. So you have this kind of corporatization or commercialization of entities that used to be thought of as more charitable. Let's turn to the concept of foundation relations. So as everyone knows, there's public relations and there's government relations, but it's very rare that companies think about a dedicated effort along the lines of foundation relations. And I think in the work that our firm has done, we really see an urgent need for companies to account for this major force in the competitive landscape of politics. And I would say in the vast majority of instances, it's not really even considered. Companies might be aware that they're under attack from organizations funded vaguely by foundations, but they don't really see the foundations as a competitor. I think that it's because companies often don't have a clear understanding of who the decision makers are. So with public relations, then you have an understanding that the public is a decision maker. They could be a customer or they could just have opinion that could be damaging. The public is a decision maker, and so companies care about the public. The government is a decision maker. You have federal government relations. You can have state government relations. That's very clear. But many companies are not really well-equipped to deal with foundation decision-makers because they're often actually not aware that leaders of major foundations are really shaping society in a similar way to 
government officials. And in certain cases, arguably, the foundations have a lot more influence than government officials. So in certain sectors, including those we've spoken about on this podcast, in the energy, automotive, environmental sector, the healthcare sector, there's definitely an urgent need for companies to recognize the role of foundations as really important decision makers and to have dedicated functions internally to manage those relationships. I think there's one X factor here that we haven't discussed, but we've discussed on prior podcasts, which is the prospect of a wealth tax in this country. And we're describing in looking out at the landscape of foundation relations, what currently exists playing out over time. But we have seen over the last five years growing calls for a wealth tax on individuals in this country. And I think as those calls get louder and louder, and they are coming almost entirely from the left, they are likely to be accompanied by a dialectical response from the right, which is to say, you want to confiscate the private fortunes of Americans, fine. What we'll do is we'll take the $13 billion in Bloomberg Philanthropy's assets and dedicate that to the defense budget. We need another aircraft carrier in the Pacific to deal with China. Great. We're going to take the John Paul Getty Trust and dedicate it to that aircraft carrier. So I would caution those who are working at private foundations right now to recognize they are in a bit of a high-risk, if low-probability, precarious position, which is to say the greater the involvement in political life that's seen by forces on the right as aggressive, the more likely there's going to be some sort of counterattack in the future. It's an excellent point, Johnny, and I think it's made even more powerful by events unfolding as we speak on campuses, university campuses across the United States. And I think the intensity of the right's opposition to the university and the modern incarnation of the university is really going to drive a future Republican presidential administration to confiscation of university endowments as a source of funding in whatever fiscal reckoning emerges in the coming years. And I can see a future Republican president saying, hey, consortium of Silicon Valley philanthropic enterprises, you've been calling for universal basic income for the last 15 years. You know what? We're going to take your assets and implement a universal basic income. So that's one example of possible policy implications, but there are many, many others. But whatever the case is, even putting aside those high-impact, perhaps low-probability scenarios, the role of foundations currently is significant as we've explored here. And I think companies are going to, over time, dedicate more and more specific effort to understanding which foundations matter in a given policy sector, how do they matter on particular issues, and what can be done to engage, shape, and in some cases, oppose those foundations. So I think this is a part of the landscape that is going to get more attention. I think it deserves more attention, and it's a bit of a blind spot, or as we said for the title, the invisible hand of American politics. A great episode. I want to thank you, Johnny, for all your great comments. They were dark, but I hope helpful. <laughs> well, dark is your thing, you know. And Jeremy, thank you as always. Thanks, Jonathan. This was fun. And thank you, our audience, for joining us for another episode of The Political Risk Brief. 